Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, it goes without saying, obviously, the Bible is a great book. And it provides us with so many answers to so many things. But there's no denying it that it certainly raises a lot of questions as well. Questions that it doesn't always explicitly answer. I was hit with one of those questions reading through the Gospel of John recently. And I started to wonder, why was there a Judas? I mean, that was a good question, right? Why, why was there? I mean, certainly we realize that Jesus did everything perfectly. We realize that, and I think to myself, couldn't he have picked a better inner circle of guys? I mean, you you think that. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm thinking to myself, yes, I I realize that the, the, the point of Jesus was to go to a cross, to give his life as a ransom for many, but couldn't the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities, couldn't we have gotten there without it being an inside job? And you Sunday school grads will start quoting Zechariah or Psalm 41, Zechariah 11, looking at the discussion in Acts 1, say, well, it's prophecy. It's all about prophecy. This was to fulfill prophecy. Even John says that. That's what it was about. And, and, and I'm thinking, great, okay, that's good. But it just pushes the question back a little further. Why did God in his sovereignty plan that there would be a betrayer? Why is that? Now, I can't definitively tell you why God does what he does if he doesn't explicitly tell us why he does what he does. But There's no denying that you and I will have the experience that Christ had. And I think about his humanity. He certainly suffered hunger and thirst and trials and pain and suffering and betrayal. And you will too, all of those things. And as our sympathetic high priest, he goes through things that sometimes it's helpful for us to look at and say, well, those are the kinds of things I go through. How does the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, deal with those things? Jesus had his Judas, and you're going to have yours. I mean, even just saying that, a betrayer, someone that you trust in that proved to not be trustworthy, someone who was your friend that became your enemy, someone who was your confidant who became your critic, someone who was your ally became your opponent, someone that you had promised you their trust. They've pledged to you their loyalty and They ended up walking out. I mean, everyone's going to experience that at some level. And it is helpful for us to think about how is that rightly handled? How do we respond to that? Jesus had his Judas, and David certainly had his Ahithophel, among others, who, if you remember through our daily Bible reading, was one of his trusted advisors in his cabinet. He relied on him, relied on his counsel, trusted him as a a friend and a counselor. And yet in the midst of that coup d'etat that was foisted by his son Absalom, you had Ahithophel defect. Now it doesn't say explicitly in the passage that I want you to look at this morning if we're talking about Ahithophel, but it certainly certainly fits the pattern. And that is, we know that David is suffering in Psalm 55, the pain of betrayal. There's a lot of pain you'll experience, a lot of pain of exterior opposition, a lot of pain of, of physical suffering, a lot of pain of illness, a lot of pain of even bereavement of those that you've lost. But there's something about the pain of 
betrayal that is so tough. And so in this passage, I'd like to give you some perspective and some hope and even a template of how you might rightly respond to it. Even as we saw Jesus rightly respond to his Judas, how does David respond to his betrayer and how would God have you respond to those that have and maybe are currently betraying you? Take a look at this text. If you haven't turned there already, I'm going to read it for you. At least parts of it to get started to give you the context. I want to, I want you to look, make sure you understand that that's what we're dealing with. So let's get to the heart of this. Then we'll get back and go through it all. But start in verse 12 with me. Psalm 55, verse 12. Pull that up on your device or take a look at that in your Bible and see that that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Betrayal. You can see the superscription of the Psalm there. This is a Psalm of David. A masculine, we're not sure what that means. Lots of guesses about that. I told you at the beginning of our series here in the Psalms, some of these words are very difficult. Musical notations are terms that relate to something related to the songs or the lyrics. Nevertheless, David is writing and he's saying this in poetical terms, but it's clear what he's talking about in verse 12, that he's not talking about the pain of an enemy. For it's not an enemy who taunts me then I could bear it. I mean, he's a warrior. He's a soldier. He knows how to deal with with enemies. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Surely I would expect that from an adversary. Well, then I could hide from him. And he had to do a lot of that. But it is you. Look how personal even it's stated here poetically. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. It's you that what? Who did all those things? You taught me. You're dealing insolently with me. We used to take sweet counsel together, verse 14. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. I mean, we had donuts and coffee on the patio, you know. I mean, that's at least how you might say it. You were in my small group. And we were prayer partners. Maybe we were accountability partners. Drop down to verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends, which, of course, he's including himself in that. He's made that very clear in verses 12 through 14. He violated his covenant. His covenant, we're assuming, to God, to the nation, if we're talking about Ahithophel, and certainly as a friend to David. Verse 21, his speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were, they were drawn swords. Now, this is painful. I hate to bring up such a painful topic for us today, but if we can learn to respond rightly to it the way that Jesus and David does and and certainly the instruction in this passage I I think we will leave in much better shape than we came so with that in view I want you to look at verse 1 and as the outline shows you if you got your outline out of your worship packet this morning you'll see I've I've grouped together verse 1 and 17 which is really simply a way to look at two texts that remind us what this whole thing is the whole thing is a prayer I mean I know it's a song and it's a set of lyrics but it's a prayer and he's saying this verse 1 give ear to my prayer O God and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy help me in this I'm hurting verse 17 how often is he praying this prayer verse 17 evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice David is praying to God about this problem And I don't mean to make an argument from silence here, but I would like to say that that is certainly the right place to go and the other places to go that we're so tempted to go in bringing our complaint is really not the way we should do this. Complaint. 
We use that in a lot of different ways, I suppose. There's a formal way. You might have a complaint in a courtroom. You might have a complaint as your friend is complaining to you about some other person. But it's the same idea. Here are the reasons I'm not happy. Here's the cause for my discontent. Here's how I'm being raked over the coals by someone who's doing me wrong. And in this passage, David is bringing that complaint to God. That's the right place to go. If you're taking notes, I wish that you would. Verse number one on your worksheet there. When you're betrayed, you need to direct your complaint to God. That's where God would have you go. Do it respectfully, but bring your complaint to him. Morning, noon, night, bring it to him all the time. Talk to him. Because there's a lot of trouble when we don't bring it to him. And we're tempted as we are, just as human beings, to take it to everyone else. Fourteen times this word complaint The Hebrew word is used, it's translated variously, but often complaint in the Old Testament. Ten times between two books. Okay, just catch that. Fourteen uses of this word. Ten times between two books. And the two books are Psalms and Job. Now in the book of Job, Job has a complaint. And his complaint is against God. He's mad at all the things that have happened. I mean, the Sabaeans have come in and stolen his property, and there's lots going on that have happened. You've got storms crushing a, a place where his kids are and killing them. It's a terrible situation for Job. But if you know the book of Job, you know the whole thing is a big discourse between Job and his, his friends. And he's complaining to his friends about all the things that have gone wrong. And how does that go, by the way, in the book of Job? We quote Job as a godly man, and and I'm certainly going to tip my hat and say he's a godly man. But all that godliness in in chapters 1 and 2, it seems to deteriorate quickly. And the more he complains to his friends about all the bad things happening, the worse this gets. In the Psalms, the same word is used. And the direction of the complaint, you'll find, is vertical. It's not horizontal. And that's the pattern. It's the pattern that I would say is the godly pattern. And I wish the godly Job would have spent more time complaining to God morning, noon, and night than he did to his friends. Now again, props and and, and great respect to Job. But I got to say, in the Psalms, we certainly see the direction of our complaint to God is super important. To keep that as the focus. Is there ever a time to complain about the betrayer in our life to someone else? Yes, in the proper settings, at the proper time, perhaps in the proper context for the right kind of counsel that will actually do something. But that's not how we complain about the people in our lives that have done us wrong. We complain for all the wrong... Let me give you five reasons this is the wrong thing to do. Number one, because you're complaining to everyone else about your betrayer. I would say, uncover the motive. It is vengeful. Let's just say that. When you get down to it, it is vindictive. When you're pulling people into your discussion about how your betrayer has done you wrong, you are trying to get them on your side so that you can somehow get them to share your rotten opinion of this person that's betrayed you. And the more you talk about it, the more you're trying to build this alliance of people that will be against those folks that have hurt you. You're mad at them. You're angry, and you're trying to get them on your side. That really is, is vindictive. And what's God think of that? Well, he's not big on that. You're taking your own revenge. Secondly, it's only going to ramp up your anger. I know we think if we spread the news and talk this out and share this with other people. I mean, we like to think that if we diffuse all of this pain 
and all this anger, it'll start to go away. If I were writing a book, I suppose this would be a good little play on words. To diffuse it, D-I, does not diffuse it, D-E. It does not take the power of anger out of my life. As a matter of fact, it's almost counterintuitive. What it does to spread the word about how badly I've been hurt is it just ramps up and stokes up your anger. And since the anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, it's not a good thing to stoke the fires of your anger toward those people because it isn't going to do anything. And it will not be helpful. It's a road to nowhere. So you sharing about all the things that have happened to you with the person that's wronging you and all your texts and all your phone calls and all the, you know, I got to tell you what they've done and what have they done this week and how that, and I didn't tell you about how they did it to me here. You just need to stop it. Bring your complaint to God. But bringing your complaint to everyone else is not helpful. It's really an act of vengeance. It's, it's vindictive and it's also going to stoke the fuel of your anger, which isn't going to accomplish what God wants done. This one may be hard, very hard to process. But you're speaking against people that are made in the image of God. You're tearing down God's creation. That may be hard. That's the hardest one, I suppose. It's really hard for me to say, I shouldn't be spreading bad about others when they're bad. How can it be bad for me to expose the bad of others? It seems like they deserve all of that, and I get all that. But jot this reference down, James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. James 3, 8 and 9, speaking about the sin of our tongue, our mouth, the words that we say. And it talks about it being a deadly evil and a poison. And then it says this, we use our mouth in church to sing these songs, and we bless our, our God and Father, right? The Lord Christ and, and the King and all the great things that God has done for us, the triune God. And then we turn around and curse people. Now here's the line, that are made in his image. Now I like to think I don't curse people except the people that deserve to be cursed. But the Bible says be careful. Matter of fact, the Bible says stop. Because those people that you're accusing, even though they may deserve the accusation of what they've done that is wrong, your bad-mouthing and slandering those people is speaking against a God who finds in them his own image. You want to test this theory in the lobby or out on the patio when some kid does something wrong, maybe takes a donut hole and throws it. Start slandering that kid with his parents standing by. Now, the parent might be running over to say, oh, Johnny, don't throw that donut hole at the pastor. Let's just make this really interesting now. (laughs) And the parent might be horrified. I would hope there would be a little bit of that. Johnny just picked up that donut hole and is throwing it at the pastor. You're watching. You step up, slander the kid. See how that's going to go over. In other words, does God think that what Judas in your life or Hithophel in your life has done you was wrong? Do you think God is happy with what happened? Of course he's not. But God, the father of all mankind, not by virtue of redemption, but by virtue of creation, looks at his creatures and he says, don't badmouth them. Think about that. That's a wild thought. For Peter to start hauling off on Judas, if perhaps at the upper room discourse he recognizes that, which of course they didn't, but if he did, and he said, Judas, and he starts ripping on Judas, what does God think of that? God says, don't rip on him. Oh, he may deserve judgment, but he is not going to have you bad-mouthing and slandering 
his children. Small c. Not his adopted children, I realize. You may have a non-Christian Judas in your life right now. But I'm just saying this, it still gives you no right to badmouth them. It is bad for you to complain about others in the sense that I'm talking about. Even though you may be calling for God's justice in all of this, be careful how you do this. And I'm saying, bring your complaint to God, not to each other. It's vindictive, it ramps up your anger, it tears down people made in the image of God. And let me just get as broad as I can. I'll give you five reasons. Here's number four. It's just prohibited. God says, don't do it. God says, you ought to be able to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And if you know the context of that verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, you know the next verse talks about us shining as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. In a crooked and perverse generation, there's going to be a lot of people that do you wrong. And you're supposed to shine as bright lights. Here's what non-Christians do when they're wronged by people in a crooked and perverse generation. They fight back with their words. They complain. They sully people's reputation. They taint their reputation. They slander them. For you to complain to other people about someone, all I'm telling you is this. God says all of that should, all the, the struggles in your life should be done without complaining. Here's one, First Corinthians 10, verse 10. First Corinthians 10, 10 recalls to the Corinthians the wandering wilderness children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And he says, don't grumble as some of them did and the destroyer destroyed them. Now, here's the thing. God got really mad at them complaining. But you know what was happening there? They were complaining to each other about Moses. Complaining to each other about Moses. And in their complaints, guess what happened? God said, I've had it. And he destroys them, many of them. But notice how they started this wilderness wandering. They started by complaining to God about the Egyptian taskmasters. That's interesting. The vertical complaint was answered by Moses coming and delivering them. The horizontal complaint about Moses was responded to by God with judgment. God does not want us complaining to one another about each other, about anything. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. On the vertical level, on the vertical level, fine, bring my complaint to God. On this level, we've got to curtail our words. Fifthly, just throwing out some pastoral wisdom to you from the scriptures and certainly from what I think all of us experience in life is when someone complains to me about what other person is doing. I'm not talking about in my pastoral role or as a counselor. I'm just talking about when someone comes and rips someone else up in my hearing and they're saying this is a bad person and then that person, their betrayer, somehow they reconcile with that person. Guess what I'm left with? A really, really bad opinion to that person. I have a hard time. Now you're in the thick of it and you and your betrayer are going at it. You come and dump all of this negativity on me. You slander them and complain about them to me. And guess what? Even if you kiss and make up, I'm going to have a hard time doing that. I just put it this way. It damages the process of reconciliation because you now have spread this to everyone else. We've got to be super careful. When you're betrayed, to do exactly what we find in this passage. And what we find in this passage is bring your complaint to God. You want to bring it a lot? Evening, morning, and noon, utter your complaint and moan. Let God hear your voice. And I'm just going to say, let's not have you be sharing the complaint with each other. 
Now, is that an absolute statement? There's times, of course, to talk about your pain, ask for prayer, to say, I'm going through this trial, I'm being sued at work, I had someone, you know, who, who betrayed me, fine. But I'm, I'm talking about you uttering that complaint, the pain of your complaint, and the slander that often results when I'm talking about the Ahithophel or the Judas in my life. Bring your complaint to God. Verses 2 through 8, back to our psalm, Psalm 55. He starts dumping now and just revealing the pain. Attend to me, God. Answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan. There's a word to highlight. This is painful. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And if this is Ahithophel, certainly Ahithophel and his turning, along with everyone else who defected in that scene, they caused a great uproar. The city turned on them. People that should have been loyal to David now were loyal to Absalom. These people have dropped trouble on me. In anger, they bear a grudge against me. What does that feel like? Verse 4, in my heart is, here's another word. I made you highlight moan. Here's another one. In anguish, there's a word to highlight. My heart is in anguish within me. That's a big word. How about this word? The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Moan, verse 2. Verse 4, anguish and terrors. Here's some more words. Verse 5, fear and trembling have come upon me and horror overwhelms me. Moaning, anguish, terror, fear, trembling, horror. What's the response to that? Well, anyone in their right mind feels this way. Verse 6, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Then there's that word Selah, which we've talked about before. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. I mean, who hadn't thought that? Get me out of here. But look at those words again. Moan, verse 2. Anguish, verse 4. Terror, fear, verse 5. Trembling, verse 5. Horror, I just want to get out. Painful. When you're betrayed, you're going to feel bad. Okay. And here's all I have to say. And I, I fear in this being redundant. It's a hard thing for me to preach to you every week because I'm up here thinking, man, I've said this to them so many times. But at risk of being redundant, let me say something to you I've said many times before. And it reminds me, by the way, of the old story, speaking of redundancy, I've shared this story before, but the pastor who comes to candidate for the job at that church, he wants to be the preacher there. He comes, he preaches a really, really good message. Everyone likes it, so they extend a call. They say, you can be our pastor. He comes, he starts his first Sunday, and he preaches the message. The problem is it's the same exact message he preached when he was candidating. They were a little embarrassed for him. They thought, oh, well, well hopefully he'll get over it. The next Sunday comes around, he's... He preaches the same exact message he preached when he candidated and the same one he preached the first week. So now they're embarrassed and they come to and say, hey, I don't know if you know it or not. I know it's, you're new and everything. You're probably nervous, but you preached the same sermon to us three times. And he said, yeah, I know. He said, and when you start living that one, I'll move on to the next one. Probably a bad lead in for me repeating this to you. <laughs> but I find it in my conversation with so many people when you're hurting and you're so shocked and so alarmed and so surprised, I'm thinking, have I not told you? Has scripture not been clear? What did you expect in a fallen world with fallen people? Number two on your outline, put it this way. We've just highlighted a lot of words. Do not be surprised by the pain. Don't be surprised by the pain. You are going to experience pain in the Christian life. Here's what Jesus said when he called us. If anyone would come after me, he said this, you'll have fun, it'll be great, you'll never hurt. Do you remember that passage? 
Look it up real quick. It's an awesome text. No, I've quoted that wrong. I always get that wrong. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his Roman execution rack, thing that people are strung up on and get tortured on, the cross, and let him follow me. He said it so often. Hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They kept my word, John 15, they'll keep your word. And you know what? A lot of people did keep his word. And then there were some people that had all of his word that could be offered. Guys like Judas, and they did not keep his word. Betrayers. I mean, I can just add to that. If I had my betrayers, you're going to have your betrayers. What are you surprised about? I'm not taking away the words I made you highlight. Moan, anguish, terror, fear, trembling, horror. I get all that. And I empathize with your pain. I'm my arm around you. I'm going to say, it feels bad. It sucks, doesn't it? It's terrible. But if you say, I don't even understand this. I don't believe it. I didn't know. You didn't know. I don't, I don't understand. You didn't know. In this world, you will have, there's another great verse, fun. Remember that verse? In this world, you will have tribulation. If you're getting hurt right now because you've had someone you've trusted in that has proved to be untrustworthy, someone that was your friend has become your enemy, someone who was your confidant has become your critic, someone who was your ally has become your opponent, if you're going, I can't believe it, believe it. It hurts so bad though, Pastor Mike, it's going to hurt. On the forecast is, is a lot of hurt. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot of pain. And there's probably no more deep, profound pain than having someone we trust betray us. So all of this is normal. It's normal. It was on the forecast. 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But here it is, verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. And guess what Christ suffered? He suffered the pain of betrayal. And guess what? You're going to suffer the pain of betrayal and you should rejoice. Hey, I got my Judas. Finally, you got your Judas? I got mine too last year. Well, rejoice insofar as this is exactly what happened to Christ. Why was there a Judas? I don't know. I think because it's one of the most profound pains we can experience. And Jesus said, I'll go through that too. And rejoice that you share in the same kind of suffering that he experienced. Now, non-Christians can't handle this. Non-Christians, when you share the gospel with them, and I know sometimes just nothing but a smoke screen, and it's, but for some people, there's some truth to this and sincerity to it. They say this, I am not going to become a Christian because, you know, there's so many hypocrites in your church. And they can't handle it. Let me, let me invert this. Hey, Christian, you need to handle it. You need to handle it. You need to handle the hypocrite. What does that mean? You need to be able to live with the pain of the hypocrites in your life. Suck it up. Take up your cross. There's the Mike Fabara's paraphrased version of the Bible. And follow Christ. He suffered through his Judas. You've got to suffer through your Judas. Handle it. They say, oh, I can't join your band because it's full of hypocrites. What a terrible group to hang out with. You know, they could have said that about Christ. Judas, been stealing from your 
your money pouch. He was in it for himself. He acted like he was your friend and apostle, but he wasn't. He's going to sell you out just to add some more money in his pocket. He was your confidant, but now he's your critic. Yep. I'm going to be able to handle that. Here's a great text to jot down if you're taking notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to these words, verses 8 through 11. We are afflicted in every way, Paul speaks of his trials, but not crushed. We're perplexed, and certainly I'm perplexed, when the Judas in my life pops up or the Ahithophel that I trust in turns on me. I get it. I'm perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's the challenge. I'm not going to let my pain turn into despair. I'm persecuted, but here's the thing. I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. Carrying around, always carrying around in the body, the death of Jesus. That's a weird statement. But you know, Jesus had all this pain and suffering and death. We're going to experience all that. So that in the midst of all that, non-Christians can't handle that. I'm not going to follow Christ. It's too hard. I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to check out so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then the next line reiterates it. Look at how it's put here. For we who live are always being given over to death. I even like the way that phrase is used, particularly when I'm studying Judas. I'm thinking about this. Always given over to death. How was Jesus given over to death? He was given over to death, specifically in the narrative, historically, by a betrayer, by a confidant, by someone who violated his trust. For we who live are always being given over to death, just like Christ was. And we do it for Christ's sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. The life of Jesus, what kind of life did he have? He had a life of incredible love and grace. He could handle it. He could handle the hypocrite. Can you handle the hypocrite? Can you handle the betrayer? Matter of fact, the night before the betrayer would succeed in having him crucified, the night he was betrayed, It was the night this was all going down and the betrayer was going to betray. He was at dinner, having dinner with the betrayer. Not only that, it started with him doing this thing we talked about recently in one of these psalms, washing his feet. Now, not only am I going to skip washing the feet of my betrayer, if I've got the knowledge that Jesus has, man, I'm going to say, hey, you know what, we, you, you meet at Tony Pepperoni, I'm going to meet at Mod Pizza. I mean, I'm going to just have you eat somewhere else that night. I'm not interested in sharing a meal with you. I don't, I'm certainly not interested in washing your feet. And Jesus, with all knowledge, sat there and graciously, graciously and kindly washed the feet of his betrayer. Think of the kindness. Think of the grace. Think of the flexibility, the magnanimous character of Christ to show not bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. I mean, I'm slandering Judas for sure in my flesh. Or I can be like Christ who said in Ephesians 4.31, let all the bitterness, all the wrath, all the anger, all the clamor, all the slander be put away from you along with all that malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the thing. You look in the mirror and see a betrayer of God and you're counting on the grace of God to have that grace and mercy toward you, a betrayer. And there's people in your life that you need to demonstrate the same thing toward. Does it mean I'm not angry? No, I'm angry. Does it mean that I don't want it changed? I want it changed. 
But it means that in my heart I realize I'm reflecting this incredible sense of love, which is my commitment to your well-being, even when you are committed to my downfall. That's crazy talk. I get it. But that's where it goes next. If you know that passage I was just quoting, the last two verses of Ephesians 4, and then that starts in chapter 5, which is just a break in our Bibles, but there's no break in the argument. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, think about how much he loves you and walk in love as Christ loved us. I mean, you can look at Judas as the bad guy and Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and all these others as good guys, but let's just think about the guys he had left over. Yeah, we may say we're Peter and we're not Judas, but Peter caused Jesus a lot of pain too. Think of the kindness of Christ toward you so that you might be able to be kind toward your betrayer. He says there in those verses, I want to fly away. If I had wings and I could be like a dove, I'd just get out of here. I'd be at rest. I'd fly. I'd wander far away. I'd find some place in the middle of nowhere. I'd get out of it all. Non-Christians can't handle, at least theoretically, being a part of our band because they can look at the Christian plumber or the Christian guy at the church and they, they're hypocrites and they're betrayers. Great. I get that. David has got to handle his Ahithophel. And I don't know if you've ever been to the place that surely David was tempted to be at as he is here. Oh, that I had wings to fly away. Here's what God needed. Needed David to go through the difficulty of being betrayed and then to get him back on the throne in Jerusalem to continue his leadership. He wanted to fly away. And I'm thinking, if I'm David, I'm done. Matter of fact, I've been there. Don't ask me too many questions. I've been there. I want to be done when I'm betrayed. I don't want anything else to do with this. But God says, I need you back in the game. So I don't need you to fly away. I don't want you to find this little, you know, town, this border town between Israel and, and Philistia. And maybe you just get there, put on, you know, grow, grow a beard and just blend in. And you can, you can be some kind of farmer or something. David wanted to get out. But he was supposed to handle this. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Flying away is not a bad desire. Now, if, if I sound like I'm contradicting myself, I'm not. Because here's how the Bible puts it. As Paul is in prison in Rome, he says to the Philippians, he's, I'll just quote right in the middle of the verse, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Take that out of context. You think, oh man, the guy has a death wish. He does. He wants to be done. And when you're betrayed, if there's ever a time you want to be done with this life, is it not then when you're betrayed? I want to be done. And if you're a Christian, you really know where you're headed. You want to be done because your hope has been set on things above, Colossians 3, not on things of the earth. And now you're thinking the world stinks. Every man is a liar. Everyone firms, as Proverbs says, their, their loving faithful, faithfulness, their loving kindness, but a faithful man who can find. I mean, I just want to be done with all this. I want to fly away. It's a good thing, but then he turns around and says this. I may be hard-pressed here between faithful ministry and flying away, but I'm going to pray I'm going to get out of this jail because that will mean fruitful labor for me, even though he had been betrayed, as it says in 2 Timothy, by many people. 2 Corinthians 5, he says the same thing. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And yet he says, I'm going to please the Lord. I'm going to live in this body. I'm going to do my job. For those of you that are done with people and done with relationships and done with trusting people and done because you have been betrayed, that's not the perspective of, of King David. 
He wants to fly away. That's not a bad desire. But he's willing to sit down and finish the work. And God's got you here in this world to finish the work. When you're betrayed, don't be surprised by the pain. Don't be derailed by the pain. Don't despair because of the pain. Don't let the pain turn into you quitting. Well, what do I do? Well, we've seen it. This is a prayer. A prayer for what? Well, you want to put it in good words? Drop down to verse 22. Here's the words that will make it on a day spring card. You'll find this on a plaque somewhere in the bookstore. Cast your burden on the Lord. Does that look good? That is good. Oh, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Now, that's great. That sounds great. And that's going to make, the, that's going to make a, 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 a framed plaque in the bookstore. But what does that mean in context? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's pick it up where we left off. Verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. Why? Because look at the mess they've caused. They see violence in the city and strife in the city. Day and night they go around in its walls and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Why? Because I had someone I trusted in. It wasn't an enemy who's taunting me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Man, then I could hide. But it's a friend. It's a man. It's a companion of mine. A familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within the house of God, we walked in the throng. What do I want to happen? Verse 15. You want to Cast your burden on the Lord. Here's, here it comes. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol, the grave, alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Praying all the time, evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and I moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. God will hear, and it's nicely put here too, and humble them. What does that mean? destroy them, divide their tongues. What does that mean? Confuse their, their, their conspiracies, kill them. Verse 15. I mean, that's, that's harsh stuff. Humble them. He was enthroned of old because they do not change and do not fear God because they do not change and they do not fear God because they do not change and do not fear God. Why is he resorting to imprecatory Psalms, right? These, these lyrics of get them, Judge them? Well, because of this. They do not change and they do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as, smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, they were, yet they were drawn swords. So now he says to them what he's doing in his own heart. Cast your burden on the Lord. When this happens to you people, trust in Yahweh. He will sustain you. He will never per- permit the righteous to be moved. Well, he's been moved out of town. And yet... God's going to be with him. You, O God, will, here it is again, cast them down into pits of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half of their days, but I will trust in you. Now, all of this is very interesting because it seems like he's a vengeful, angry, balled up, wanting to get revenge kind of guy. Remember the context. What's the context? It's a prayer. It's a prayer. He's praying to God. He's not conspiring with Abishai or Joab saying, let's go get him. He's not complaining. He's trusting and praying that God will take care of the problem. Number three, when you're betrayed, put it this way, leave the vengeance to God. Not a bad thing. 
to first pray what I think you should graciously pray. And that is what we said, what I repeated multiple times in verse number 19. Pray that they change and pray that they would learn to fear God. But there's nothing wrong with us recognizing that there are times in our praying that because we want the treachery, the insolence, the betrayal to stop, we want it to stop one way or the other, either by repentance, by them changing and fearing God, or by God, would you just judge them? i got to be careful with that, but he's being very honest in this passage. Morning, noon, and night, I utter my complaint and moan. I'm giving you license to tell God your complaint. All the time, tell him your complaint. Just shut your mouth when you're speaking to other people. And when you share with God, I know you're going to share God. Change their heart. Change their heart. Change their heart. Let them fear you. Let them see the wrong that they're doing. But you're going to let slip out, I'm sure. Because ultimately, it is a motivation for you continuing to do right. And I say that because Paul wrote the Thessalonians. And he says, it's only right that God would afflict those with judgment, those that are afflicting you. One thing that keeps me on the right path is knowing this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, and I'm quoting now, well, I'm quoting the Old Testament. But it's quoted there in Romans chapter 12, where he says, never take your own revenge. Matter of fact, when they curse you, you bless them in return. Matter of fact, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. You feed them and you care for them. Matter of fact, if their feet are dirty and you can wash them, wash them. If you got a meal, feed them. You be kind and you keep doing good. And you know what? Evil's going to be overcome. Either by their repentance or by their judgment. Which, by the way, is how that whole section ends in Romans 12. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let your perplexity about your trustworthy friend becoming an enemy. Don't let that lead you to despair. Don't let it overcome you. Don't say with a non-Christian, I can't handle the hypocrites. But overcome that evil with good. Your task is to do the right thing. And your task is to do, even in your prayer life, to say, God, I need you to take care of this. I'm not taking justice into my own hands. When David was wandering around between that period of time, 12 plus years, between being anointed by Samuel as the king and having Saul reigning, and he's a fugitive running all through the the, the countryside. Eventually, the men of Benjamin and Judah came to David, to his stronghold, the locals there in, in the south, and they came to him and they said, hey, we want to join your band. And it says in First Chronicles chapter 12, it says that David has this perspective, and he says it. When these people went out to meet him, he's not sure who to trust. He says this, if you've come in friendship to help me, then my heart's going to be joined to you. I'm with you. But if you betray me to my adversaries, although there's no wrong in my hands, if you betray me without cause, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you and deal with you. Now, I don't know if that's a good way for you to start your friendships with people, to say that. But it's not a bad way to think about it particularly if you've been burned in the past, to say to God, God, here's the thing. When I get overtures of loyalty and friendship, my heart's going to be with you. But here's the thing. If you turn on me, I'm going to trust God to take care of you. The Lord will see the eyes of the Lord in every place, watching the evil and the good. And I'm going to trust. I'm not going to let my life be overcome by evil. Even if it happens again, I'm going to overcome evil with good, which means I'm going to pray. I'm not going to be demoralized by the pain. And I'm going to say to God, God, you've got to deal with these people. The Bible 
says some great things about how God feels about his children. And I don't mean to sentimentalize God, but there are some passages that certainly show us his care is so compassionate. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it talks about the people of God being the lens of someone's eye. Remember the old phrase, the apple of the eye? I didn't ever know what that meant as a kid. I heard it all the time, but it means your eye, the part, this very sensitive part of your eye. And it talks about being in a howling desert, a windstorm, a dust storm. And it talks about God will, will shield you, protect you, like, like the apple of his eye. And you can see that in an ancient Near Eastern picture with the, you know, the head scarves and all that, covering the eyes in the midst of a windstorm. He found you in a desert land, in a howling waste, in a wilderness. He encircled you. He cared for you. He kept you as the apple of his eye. All I'm saying is this. God takes the betrayal in your life personally. It doesn't mean he's not going to let any sand get in his eyes, because he certainly will. He let some sand get in Jesus' eyes. His name was Judas. He let an Ahithophel get into David's circle and betray him. And he's going to let betrayers get into your life. But don't think God is sitting there dispassionate about your pain. He'd like you to bring your complaint to him. Just don't bring it to everyone else. He'd like you not in your perplexity to despair. And he wants you to know in time he's going to take care of these issues. Trust him. Isn't that how this ends? What great words to end with. Verse 23. But even all these things, and whenever God does it, It's not resolved, but I'm trusting God. I will trust in you. Flying back from a speaking engagement somewhere, and it was long. I had multiple stops. I was at the airport, dropped off the rental cars, one of those big rental car complexes where you have all the buses and all these cars, like half a mile or a mile from the airport where everyone has to go to get a rental car. Return the rental car, and there's, it was like underground where you finally had to get your, your shuttle to the airport terminal. And I came out, had luggage because it was a long trip, had my carry-on. I come out of the door, and I think, oh, fantastic. It was right out of the door. Here was a shuttle bus, and the doors were open, and it was great. I walked right into it, right off the curb, threw my stuff, my heavy luggage into the luggage rack, plopped down into the chair. I thought, good, I got a good seat. It's right by the door. Fantastic. And I sat there, and I sat there, and I finally stood up and looked to see, realized no one else is in this bus, and there's no bus driver in the seat. I was embarrassed. I looked around, looked through the windows of the bus, realized that you had to cross the street to get into the shuttle buses that were actually going somewhere. So I sheepishly took my luggage out, went across the the street, Got to that curb. I don't know why they do that, but there it was. Got in that one. Looked to make sure there was a bus driver. There was a bus driver. Threw my luggage in there. The doors eventually closed and off to the terminal I went. The intuitive response to us being betrayed is to get really angry, to share our anger with people, to vindictively build an alliance. To think that somehow I got to tell the story and I got to finish and settle the score myself. I mean, that's the open door. You walk out of your painful season of betrayal. You want to get in that, but it's right there. Everyone else is getting in it. The problem is there's no bus driver there, it's going nowhere. 
Your vindictive, vengeful, angry, complaining feelings about your Judas and your Ahithophel, it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. Stop talking about it. Get in the right bus. Sit down, shut up, and let the bus driver take you where he wants to take you. It may not happen on your schedule, but you got to trust him and stop talking about it to everyone. Trust the Lord. Take those last six words, but I will trust in you. And see, that's my mantra. I may pray some things I wouldn't want to publish in a, in a hymnal about my betrayers. But I'm directing that complaint and I'm moaning in my pain to him. I'm not derailed by it. I'm not surprised by it. Jesus had his. David has his. I have mine. I'm not going to be dissuaded. Trust in the Lord. He'll figure this out. Let's pray. God, help us in a day of betrayal that some must be going through right now, I'm sure. And if it's not today, it'll be tomorrow, next week, next year. But surely, I'm not naive to to think that, that all of us don't have our stories of betrayal. We do. We need to learn to handle it properly. And God, forgive us for all of our blathering about our our enemies. The enemies that hurt the worst, the ones that were close to us, that walked with us in the throng in church. God, let us stop talking, thinking that that sharing and building alliances is going to make all the pain go away, all the anger subside. It doesn't. Help us to trust you. You said vengeance is yours. You'll repay. We hope instead we can graciously pray for repentance and people to change and fear God. But even in our frustration to know that you will fix the problem. Let us be trust-filled people, people that really have faith and confidence in you, a God that sees all. God, give us a better perspective and a better attitude and better words as we learn to be gracious and love as you do. God, thank you for this reminder from your word. Let it be a great template for us as we experience the betrayal in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.